All right, so we're going to continue on with the Romans study. Um, John Gray's been doing a great job of that, but they're out of town on vacation this week, a much-needed vacation. They deserve it. <laughs> and um, I'm going to try to handle uh, a little bit of an alley-oop. Hopefully we're going to slam dunk it, but we'll, we'll see. John Gray served it up last week with a really good message on... Um, he called it the book of deeds, but it was understanding the judgment that accords with all deeds, both of the righteous and the unrighteous, so all deeds that are recorded and judged, and that is a book that is opened on the judgment day, and there's also a book that's open called the book of life, which is recorded all those who are, whose names are found in the book of life are those who are the Lord's, that are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb's book of life. So the Lamb's book of life on the judgment day obviously trumps... Um, the deeds done in the body and in life, but the deeds that are still recorded. And so that's this interesting um, point uh, to understand the dynamics of holiness and sanctification in the Christian life. John Gray did a great job of bringing that out. I really recommend referring uh, you to that, um, that uh, teaching from last week. He also talked about the distinction of justification by faith and um, uh, and the deeds that are recorded and that our deeds are to be righteous. We are not, I want to just say this out front because we're going to be dealing with the topic of the law today. So the purposes of the law, specifically in the book of Romans. But to first off, out, right out the gate, say our righteousness is not, we are not justified by works of the law. Our righteousness does not come from our works of the law. Hey, everybody say amen. <laughs> first off, that would be a really impossible righteousness to do because we don't do the walls very well. <laughs> We're all sinners. Um, we'll see it as well, the power of sin today. That's what I hope to bring out. And I do have enough time. I should be able to get all the way through that. Um, sin is an actual power at work in you. Everybody say amen. <laughs> we all know that one well and good. And that power is defeated by the grace of God, in the blood of Christ. He justifies us and gives us a new calling and identity, which John Gray covered last week. And we still, with this new calling and identity, have a fleshing out of fullness of that identity. A fleshing out of this union with Christ. We have works to do. They don't make us any more saved, but they give glory to God. Therefore, by what standard may we judge those works? By what standard may we judge what's good and bad, what's right and wrong, what's beautiful and ugly? By what standard is this? The law of God. His perfect, holy, righteous, immutable, which means it never changes, law. Now, there is plenty of discussion, and we can get into that uh, at a later date, of the different categories of the law. Today, when I am referring to the law, capital L law, I am referring specifically to the Ten Commandments. Okay? Just so everybody's on the same page, I'm not talking about Levitical ceremonial laws, I'm not talking about ethnic uh, Jewish laws, I'm talking specifically about the Ten Commandments that were literally written by the finger of God on tablets of stone and marched down Sinai to the people, delivered in a holy revelation by God, an immutable revelation of God. Just so we're clear. 
Ten Commandments is what I refer to when I say the law. And it is by examining this law that we may know how we are to live, how we are called to, how we may discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart and the actions of our day-to-day lives. So the book of Romans is really, really excellent at dealing with the law. And I would encourage, I think I encouraged the guys last night at our, at our men's group to reread Romans and look for the instances of the law. How does, God, how does Paul teach about the law in the book of Romans? It's a super fascinating point that sometimes in Reformed traditions can maybe get glossed over because the doctrines of justification by faith, which was a great Reformation rediscovery um, from a, a works-based system of, of religion, um, that's very much highlighted all the time. Uh, justification by faith, therefore, also grace, the doctrines of grace and the powers of sin, those are all talked about pretty regularly in Romans, but the law is too. Paul talks a lot about the law. It's in every single chapter, um, I think. I might, that might be an exaggeration. Some of the later chapters may not talk about it. But anything, 1 through 13, it's a major theme. It's a main topic. So you have righteousness of God revealed um, in, uh, let's say, this is, uh, we will be skipping around some of these chapters, and I will be reading longer portions. This particular portion will be um, Romans 1. We'll start with verses 16 and 17, and then hop back to 1 through 6 for the uh, sound team to put those up there for me. Um, the revealing the righteousness of God, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Verses 1 through 6 um, are a greeting, uh, but it's the latter portion, but it's all like one sentence, so you kind of have to read it together. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God is revealed through Christ and in his gospel. And the obedience of faith is, a, is the work that God has called the apostles to, is what Paul's saying. He's called of Christ and they're to work out the obedience of faith into all men, bring all men into obedience. There is therefore a standard of obedience. It's not a capricious standard. It's not a a changing and vacillating standard. It is a very defined standard of obedience. That's That's the work that the apostles are up to. That's the work that Paul endeavors with this letter to the Romans, a theological treatise on what obedience in faith looks like. What are the dynamics? What's at play here? Specifically, sin, grace, faith, righteousness of God, and a law that brings it all to bear. The law becomes a very active agent in this equation. This is where we also get the language. So if you could say, what's the purpose of the law? Revealing the righteous standard of God. It's a tutor for sin. Right? That's the words Paul uses in Romans. Romans 3, 1 through 31. This is the whole chapter, so we will read it, because 
it's, there's, it's hard to pick and choose which verses that don't, that shouldn't be read. <laughs> it's really hard. And we do have the time, so if you'll bear with me, you guys could bring that whole chapter up. I will go ahead and, for your sake, <laughs> read it in the ESV so it accords with what's on the screen. Because I, I read from the NASB with my Bible. But look for the law in its presence in this passage, its role, how Paul describes it, and um, understanding it as a tutor, something that teaches us about sin. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. But by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Basically saying, that's a ridiculous point. <laughs> why, let's, if, if by my sin grace abounds all the more, why not sin? Paul's like, I'm not even going to answer that one. <laughs> What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Point number one. All men are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth, mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Ouch. That's us. <laughs> now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Accountability to God is a purpose of the law, because all men are sinners. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Knowledge of sin comes through the law, but we are not justified by it, by the works thereof. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. There is a revelation apart from the law, which was a revelation in itself, came down from Sinai, written by the finger of God. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, this, right, this new righteousness revelation, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, 
but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the un- who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. We are not justified by the works of the law, but it is still a righteous standard. It is still good, and we uphold it. If Paul's seeking to bring about the obedience of faith, all of those tenets, clearly articulated, are to be ours as we seek to obey. Now, the question is, did I want... I'm going to skip chapter 4 because it talks about Abraham and his righteousness accorded by faith. And that his obedience to circumcision and the law of the covenant was something that came after his belief and reception of the promise. So he was accorded and accounted as righteous by faith, not by action. That's, a, that's the point Paul brings out in Romans 4, among others. That's a super boiled down synopsis. So we'll go down to chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, if you don't mind. And again, we're looking for instances of sin, law, and righteousness all working together. Therefore, just as sin sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. There was a period between Adam and Moses where the Ten Commandments weren't present, where the law of God was not clearly known. They were real, and they very much functioned in reality, but it had not been revealed by the finger of God, shall we say. So there was knowledge of God, and there are laws. They never changed, they never went away, but they hadn't been made known. And so death reigned. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. The law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law's function increases the trespass. Why is that? Because now we know about it. 
Now we know that standard. Now we can measure ourselves and say, ooh, not living up to that one. <laughs> it's a tutor to sin. The law is a tutor for sin. And that is the grace of God that we would even be brought into the light enough to know how dirty we are. How bad our need for a Savior really is. The law serves that purpose. And I will go ahead and read all of chapter 6. Yep, sorry. <laughs> what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we all will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, notice the dynamics of sin and righteousness, okay? This is how we're to, in our new calling and our new justified identity, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That verse is one of the most confused verses when you take it out of context, probably in all evangelicalism. <laughs> People use that verse to say, the law has no application because I'm no longer under law, I'm under grace. I've heard it a million times. That is definitely not what that verse is talking about. It does not nullify the law. Otherwise, the rest of Romans is kind of voided. <laughs> there is an application of the law, but the under the law is the condemnation of the law, which he articulates better in, um, or more, more in depth uh, in chapter 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation that comes from the tutor that teaches us of our sin is no longer the active reality for us. The grace of God beats sin. So we're no longer to consider ourselves alive to sin, we're to consider ourselves dead to it because God's grace has baptized us in Christ's death and resurrected us to new life. We are one with Christ and now we are no longer dominated by sin. We are no longer allowed to be slaves to sin. Yet the struggle remains. We'll get to that. Slaves to righteousness. 
uh, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Can't just keep going about sinning. It's inexcusable. It's still sin. Grace does not allow us to continue in sin. It gives us the power to defeat it. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, there's the law again, but the opposite, lawlessness, without law. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. As John Gray made a very distinct point last week, justification by faith brings us in the door, but the obedience of faith brings about the sanctification in the life of God, in the life that we have. We come into the city, we're justified, we're given the right clothing, we're we're given the passport, we're in the city, now we have city life to attend to. And in the process, we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is sanctification. This is the realm of sanctification. It's not the realm of entrance or or salvation. It's the realm of the salvation being manifest in greater and greater ways to the glory of God by making his people more and more like him, more and more holy. The law plays a distinct role in that as we progressively are sanctified. It's not the means by which we're sanctified. It's actually the means by which we're taught how much more sanctification we need. Hopefully this is making sense. For when you were, verse 20, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. All right, a little bit more of the law, verses, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And look, uh, this one, this one doesn't use the word I was looking for. The word is jurisdiction, and in the NASB, um, that word appears in verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? In the ESV, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? The word binding and jurisdiction are interchanged. I like the word jurisdiction because it demonstrates a realm of authority. It demonstrates a boundary by which it um, it has effect. But binding also can mean that as well. So it's whatever. It's good contrast. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. The law is binding on a person as long as he lives. 
Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Well, is it law applicable now or not? What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, sin is a power, it's active, it has seizing an opportunity, potentially even a will. <laughs> it's doing something. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. The standard is applicable. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not now if I do what I do not want it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right evil lies close at hand For I delight in the law of God in my inner being but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Anybody feel that one deep in their being? <laughs> I know I do. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free 
in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. I will stop reading Romans now. Um, But do we see clearly the tutor of sin that the law is? It's applicable. And it's even the standard of our righteous deeds after we become Christ's. The law of sin and death has condemnation attached to it. But the law of the spirit and life has liberty and grace to obey it now. Paul very clearly says, I have it in my heart to obey the law of God. I really want to. But there's this war inside of me. This war of sin that wants to not submit to the law of God. And wretched anybody who knows the law and finds himself in that struggle. Wretched man that we are. (laughs) Men and women that we are that find ourselves in the midst of that struggle. Day in and day out potentially. But God has delivered us from this body of death. The blood of Jesus washes us. We are no longer bound to that law of condemnation. We are bound to the laws of righteousness. We are slaves of righteousness. Obedience is required. And there is a standard by which that obedience may be understood. That we may cry out for more grace in our day in and day out struggle with sin. The struggle doesn't go away this side of heaven. In life, you will struggle with sin. But there is power to beat that power. The power of sin, capital S sin, not sins, as in enumerated with all the actions, the actual power itself, sin, is able to be defeated by the power of the blood of the Lamb that washes us clean, enters us in afresh. His mercies are new every morning. And we may again seek to pursue and obey. And as we enter in, this becomes all the more stark as we start to pursue God. We're now Christians. We've got the Spirit of God living in us. We've got a war going on inside. And we approach God in actual reality, His presence. We encounter the holy God of the universe in very real, manifest ways. We come into His presence. We are encountered with His holiness, and it teaches us all the more how much we don't. We are not like him. He is holy. He's other than. Not like us. He's God. 
And as we enter in, we realize how much sin really still has a play in our lives. How much it still drives us, forces us into, or causes us to do stuff. And how much more we have to seek Him to enter into that grace that He's already given. It's already bought, paid for. It's a gift, gift box already wrapped up. We have to seek and unwrap the present. It is a gift. It has to be opened. It has to be received. And it has to be engaged and pursued. And that's in that pursuit, in that reception, in that opening, in that fresh grace, that fresh reception of the gift, we have victory over sin in this life. We reign in life. Literally is the words that Paul uses. That's huge. That's the gospel, guys. And in so pursuing this righteousness of God, in so seeking to be conformed to the image of his son, we establish the law. We confirm it. We manifest it. We agree with it. We say it's good. It's a good standard. It's the perfect, righteous, immutable standard of God. It's holy, righteous, and good. And I don't measure up. But we establish it. And this is actually, so that's a very much a, you know, kind of one of those struggles that goes on inside you. But when you're actually pursuing God and you're struggling through sin, there is something that happens outside of you. That kind of warfare in your heart is violent warfare, and it doesn't leave the terrain or the people in your immediate vicinity unaffected. I hope that's clear. I hope everybody understands that. As you're warring against sin, there's fallout. You will be convicted when you're at work or in your single brother or single sister's households. You'll be convicted, I'm in sin and I'm wrestling with sin and I'm trying to pursue God. And then all of a sudden, somebody does something really sinful. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, that's sin too. <laughs> we have an obligation to identify that sin to, for one another. In the Christian community. It's part of the Christian life. We have an obligation to help others see where they're not obeying God's law. Where they're not wholeheartedly devoted to Christ. Where they're not pursuant of Him and the grace that is available to defeat sin. We have those obligations. And I'm pretty sure everybody knows we all do that a lot around here. <laughs> we help each other understand where we're not meeting the call of God on our life. We're not entering in and really manifesting the identity that Christ has called us to. We do that for one another regularly and often. I can look over the crowd and pretty much see <laughs> lots of people I've had that conversation with within the last week or so. <laughs> and that's right and good, but that's not even the extent of the fallout of your own struggle and waging war to defeat sin in your own life. You go to work in the workplace around unbelievers and something really sinful happens. You've been trained and you're now acutely aware of the sin in your own heart because of the law of God, praise God. And you're defeating it on a regular basis by crying out to grace and so forth. And then you find yourself in the midst of a sinful situation. Something at work is totally considered stealing according to God's standards. Something in work is totally, um, the, the politics of your corporate life or whatever is totally just covetously based. Like it's just I desire after what they have and I will seek mal malicious 
exercise to accomplish and acquire it. <laughs> that happens all the time. It doesn't take more than a week in any sort of business to see those type of functions and, and um, happenings, uh, that kind of sin manifesting. The law of God teaches us what covetousness is. It teaches us that it's a heart disposition to desire after someone else's stuff. And we have the knowledge of sin in a way that the world doesn't. If they're not ardent students of the law, they probably know they're sinners. But the law standard that they're assessing that, uh, that sinful status with is not necessarily the Ten Commandments. It's whatever law they've derived in their own heart and their own mind. And that's a pitfall we have, is we create laws unto ourselves. We don't accord ourselves to God's standards of righteousness. We come up with our own standards. Yep, I totally agree with Ten Commandments, but this one really doesn't quite fall there. I'm going to go ahead and make a call here and say that's not so bad. Or maybe this is better or worse in whatever way. I, I'm justified to take this action, whatever. We do that all the time. Every man is susceptible to that struggle and that line of thinking. So much more so the world. They don't even have a, a point where they wrestle with the law of God when they come up with their own law. <laughs> they come up with their own standards and definitions for all the words. Let's rewrite all the definitions for the words. Marriage doesn't mean marriage. Male and female doesn't mean male and female. Um, drug addict, troubled, mentally addicted. Eh, we're just going to call that normal. We're justifying our sins all the time in this world. And the world is actively engaged in any way of justifying their existence in life that doesn't accord with the law of God. Sin is a power at work in their lives. They don't want it. Except that God would reveal it to them. And he does that through us. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And when you start to evangelize, you have to keep in step with the Spirit to start doing what the Spirit is doing. Meet the Spirit where he's at in this person's life. That's, evangel that's real good evangelism. Because I, I know what God's up to here, and I'm going to try to participate with that. Lord, help me. And then you start trying. <laughs> you know? That's what evangelism really looks like. That's what Christian discipleship is like inside the church. It's bringing about the obedience of faith. And, re and helping the world understand the dynamics and power of sin and the righteous requirements of God and his powerful defeat of that power that enslaves all men. There is fallout from your struggle with sin that is redemptive, that is potent, that God uses to change history, to shape history according to his purposes and destinies. He uses your struggles with sin in day in and day out to accomplish those things. So the exhortation, therefore, is struggle. Cry out for grace. Fight on. Wage the war. Get back up on the horse and go after it again. Because his mercies are new every morning. And today, at the hearing that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, you can receive that afresh. And be empowered, washed fresh in your conscience to go out and struggle again. Because God works redemptive things through that struggle. It is worth it. He's worth it.
When we talk about worship, that's ascribing value and worth to something or someone. When we worship God, we are declaring your most valuable. You're worth the struggles. You're worth the suffering. You're worth hoping when I want to despair. You're worth loving when I want to hate. You're worth believing when I want to not. You're worth obeying when I want to rebel. You are worthy of submission, Lord. That is very good worship. And it gives him glory. We have that opportunity in the Christian life and we provoke one another to it. I'm sure I'll be seeing all of you at some point or another <laughs> and having those conversations. <laughs> and I hope you'd have them with me. Because I'm not arrived yet. This side of heaven, nobody has. There's still a lot of rebellion and a lot of lawlessness that I engage in, in my heart. I was talking to somebody this week, won't say who, but they were texting me, they are saying, I, I just struggle all the time with wanting to quit and throw in the towel and just leave the church and leave Christ. I just am such a terrible, awful sinner. And I said, I have that thought every single day. <laughs> there is no day that I don't go through that. And I realize it's not me thinking it as much as it's sin at work in me. It's the devil trying to stir up sin in my heart and saying, just quit. Just stop. That's normal, guys. And you have power to shut it up, to defeat it and slay it. You got power to crucify that thought, to crucify those temptations that drive you mad. We all do. It's available to us in Christ. May we help one another relate to that grace, that powerful grace that literally defeats sin, the power that enslaves us from infancy on. That power, grace, the power that delivers us into newness of identity and makes us one with him. May we provoke one another to such things. And as we come to the table, we are met at the family table of the Lord, at rest, at peace, justified, welcomed, adopted, apportioned, and supposed to be there. And we take this bread and we break it, and this is my body, this is my blood, and as we partake of the elements, we receive them in faith knowing that God is knitting us together cleanly, afresh, and he's bringing us to be one in a new way for a new week and for the work that must be done. Receive these elements in faith with the full expectation that God is working something in our midst that brings us into his image, closer unity to one another, and is defeating the powers of sin and death. Not because the elements are magic, but because his grace is real. And this is, this is our act of obedience that symbolically, very literally, unites us to one another in him, in faith. Enjoy. Come forth.